Well, good afternoon, everybody. Good evening to some of you. Good night to some of you. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, and this is our Sunday book read night. Every Sunday, I read from a paranormal-themed book, and it's a true story every Sunday based on true, based on true events, and I read for about an hour, and uh, I just love to bring these stories to you guys. This week, we're we may be finishing off Omnipresent, What Happened Next by Lynn Monet. So we'll see how that goes. Like I said, I will read for an hour. For those of you on TikTok, just a quick warning. Um, I can't see your messages. I'm sorry. I have old eyes. So it's, it's, it's difficult for me to see because you are on my iPhone, my iPhone, 4, my, my, my iPhone 11. So it's kind of difficult for me to see. I'm, save, I'm trying to save up to buy a new tablet. And, you know, if you see my goal up at the top, for um, Lucy Lamas, that's why she's there. So that could go towards my expenses for my radio show that, that, that I do every day, okay? Sunday marks the start of my week. My week ends on Friday. Uh, as I said earlier, Sunday we do do reads on uh, of a paranormal theme book. And then the rest of the week we interview guests, various guests from various backgrounds, paranormal, non-paranormal. I'm a journalist, photojournalist by trade, so I like to change it up a lot. You know, so I don't, I'm not bringing in the same stuff. But um, if you're interested in that sort of thing, you can visit us during the week at 6.30 p.m. Pacific at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. And we're there every every night at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with a different guest on. And uh, we'll be teasing. Ch Sandra Champlain will be with us tomorrow talking about views of the afterlife. So this should be an interesting show tomorrow. Anyway, welcome, everybody. Welcome, Facebook. Welcome, YouTube. Welcome, Twitch. Welcome, Twitter. Welcome, TikTok. You're all welcome. You're all welcome. Uh, if you're watching from Facebook and you haven't done so yet, you like what you hear tonight, please be sure to hit that follow button. Always looking for followers. Always looking to expand my audience. Uh, also, uh, if you could, if, if you like what you hear tonight, give me a thumbs up. Yeah, show me some love. Shoot some hearts up. Smileys. Whatever you got. Fire them off at me. Because uh, when you do that, it puts us higher in the Facebook at FYP, and it says this out to more people to see. Okay. Plus, if you're at home right now, and uh, maybe you're sitting around, you're, you're sitting at dinner. Some people put me in their pocket and clean house while I'm reading. But if you're home tonight, and there's other people in the house you think might be interested in the show. Be sure to just bring them in and say, "Hey, there's, there's this little show out of Sacramento, and it's a pretty good show. She's on six days a week, and uh, I enjoy it a lot. Try and get some more people involved in it." YouTube, same thing. If you haven't, if, if you're watching from YouTube and haven't subscribed to uh, or to, to the California House Radio yet, please do so. Especially if you like what you hear. Okay, I'm trying to build that up. Trying to hit that thousand mark on YouTube by Christmas. Wouldn't that be a great Christmas present? Same thing. FYP, right? Thank FYP. Thank happy faces, smileys, hearts, whatever you want to throw up there. And also, be you know, be sure to comment. Be sure to comment. Hang on, let me get this up too. I haven't put this up yet. Be sure to comment. Let me just throw that out there. There we go. Where's my check thing? I'm slow today. Yeah, be, please be sure to comment. I really appreciate it. That puts us up higher in the FYP on YouTube. TikTok. Back to you guys. Please be sure to double double tap that screen. I am trying to build up my you know build up my number of likes on TikTok for the same reason to get those FYPs going. But I really appreciate it if if you could double tap that screen while I'm reading, okay? Or any gift would be great. I'm not, you, 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 no one's required to donate or put a gift in, especially you know, Lucy the Llamas or, or, or 
roses or whatever. No one's required to do that. But it would help me a lot because I'm trying to make this show a success. I'm trying to I'm trying to finance it all on my own and, and all this good stuff. So if you could help me out and help me get more of a presence on, on TikTok, that would be great. Double tap that screen while I'm reading. And again, I cannot read your comments. I apologize. All right. So if you guys are in the mood for a really not really nice evening, nice hour, sit back, kick your shoes off, sit back on your couches, sit back in your car. Maybe you're sitting by the river in your car or something, and enjoy my reading to you. Leave the driving to us. Used to say, leave the driving to us. Leave the flying to us. That's what. Leave the driving to me. California Haunts Paranormal uh, Radio and Investigation Team. Uh, we are 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means we can get you in an emergency. It might take us a couple days because California is a big state, but we can get you. You know, if you guys think you might have a paranormal thing going on. Uh, if we can't get you right away, because sometimes it might take us a couple days. Like I say, California is a big state. If we can't get you right away, then we have uh, mediums on staff who, who, who could phone you and in most cases settle down with whatever's going on. Okay. All right. That being said, I'm going to read for about an hour here, and please TikTok, you know, please double tap that screen. I'd like to go for 3,000 likes today. If we can do that, can we hit the 3,000 like mark? Double tap that screen for me. I would really appreciate it. And if you find it in your heart, help me out with, with Lucy Lomas. I'd really appreciate that. All right, here we go, guys, and we are reading Omnipresent: What Happened Next by Lynn Monet. And I do have permission by the author and the publisher to read this book online. Thank you. I see some hearts going up. Thank you. Trying to hit 3,000 hearts. Help me out, guys. Double tap the screen. Double tap that screen. Sophie contacted Bill and Lynn shortly after her youngest daughter, or youngest sister, committed suicide in her home. Let me get up here. Sophie's sister, Jacqueline, moved in with Sophie so she could get back on her feet after struggling financially. Sophie owned a five-bedroom, three-bathroom ranchette with beautiful views, horses, and a swimming pool. Jacqueline was the mother of three teenage girls. The oldest had a son. Jacqueline was unemployed, and this created stress in the family. She also suffered from depression. Jacqueline decided to take her own life after about a year of living with her sister. Her daughters were left in Sophie's care. After Jacqueline's death, Sophie started to notice black shadows in her home, and a demon that used those shadows and best platforms to enter. It resided mostly in her bedroom. Sophie started to hear noises in her room at night and began feeling the presence of something evil. She became con concerned. Now, another quick warning with everybody. This is a PG-13 to rated R channel. So if there's something you hear on here that upsets you or something, just move on. Please don't turn me into the, to, to the TikTok police or the Facebook police or anything like that. I'm, I'm just reading a book, okay? Thank you for the hearts. Thank you. Please keep double tapping that screen. Okay. Okay. It resided mostly in her bedroom. Sophie started to hear noises in her room at night and began feeling the presence of something evil. She became concerned that when her sister died, it may have left open a portal to the other side, and unwanted entities were now coming into her room. She had seen some unexplainable things in her house. Bill and Lynn planned to come assess the situation and clear Sophie's house that upcoming weekend. When they arrived, they were greeted by Sophie outside. Sophie talked about where most of the activity was occurring. Upon entering the home, Lynn could feel a vacuum of energy that seemed to be coming from an area behind the refrigerator located in the laundry room. This vacuum of energy could be a portal. What's on the other side of this wall, Lynn asked. 
It's a stairwell, said Sophie. Lid walked past the stairwell into the kitchen. As she did so, she could feel the pressure and burning sensation, like an explosion in the center of her chest that seemed to get worse when she neared the stairs. Sophie verified that at the top of the stairs was Jacqueline's bedroom. It was also where she had shot herself in the chest while lying on her bed. Lynn started up the stairs. About halfway up, she could feel the energetic vacuum on her legs. Jacqueline's soul exited here, Lynn told Bill. Sophie was correct. The portal was left wide open. Lynn continued up to Jacqueline's bedroom, stepping into the room. Lynn could feel the negativity and emotional imprints from, Jacqueline's pri from Jacqueline prior to her suicide. Lynn felt that Jacqueline's soul was immediately catapulted out of her body. Jacqueline's soul had stood at her bedside for a while, then left when Sophie arrived home and pulled into the garage. She didn't want to be there when her body was found by Sophie. She was ashamed and could not bear to see Sophie's reaction. It was a suicide of selfishness to get even with her daughters, one of which she had been fighting with a lot. She had left a suicide note that stated this. She blamed her daughter for her suicide and basically killed herself to get even. This explained why Sophie was seen in the black shadows. They were created by a buildup of negative thoughts and words. As Lynn exited the bedroom and headed down the stairs, a creature showed up right before her very eyes. A short troll-looking thing that quickly vanished into the portal in the wall. Lynn knew the portal needed to be sealed after clearing the, after the clearing to prevent any further apparitions from entering Sophie's home. Lynn continued to walk through the house and felt negative patches of energy, mostly in the master bedroom, which was Sophie's, and the hallway, bathroom, and the laundry room. The strongest area was Sophie's closet. Lynn and Bill prepared to start the clearing. Lynn followed along with Bill to open doors and hold items out of the way. When Bill opened Sophie's closet door and started to enter, a huge form flew out right over the top of Bill's head and right past Lynn. It went so fast, it sounded like a buzzing bee flying by right next to her ear. It flew into Sophie's bathroom to hide. They could hear an item being knocked over on the bathroom counter as it whizzed by. Bill completed the closet and started working from that area towards the bathroom. Crack open the door for it to leave on its own or be forced out, Bill said the lip. Excuse me. Bill continued the clearing until he completed, until he completed every area. Then Lynn went back through herself and asked Bill to go through one more time to seal the deal, she said, Lynn said. As Bill went through the house one more time, Lynn followed with a blend of multiple types of incense, sage, and holy water to do a smudging. Both Lynn and Bill were exhausted by the end of the clearing. They had fought the negativity while it fought against them. Next section, Patricia. Thank you. Please keep double-tapping that screen. I'm seeing those hearts. Thank you. I'm loving it, loving it, loving it. Patricia was a grandmother who lived alone. She would help out her daughter, Lacey, a single mom with her children, Adam and Brianna, on the weekends while Lacey worked. Adam was age three and Brianna age nine. Both loved to see their grandma, and, they enjoyed their, and she enjoyed their company, too. Patricia and her fiancé had bought a brand-new home with a mountain view six months before. They both loved the home. Unfortunately, Patricia's fiancé passed away shortly after they moved in. He was diagnosed with heart cancer and died in a hospital bed with hospice care in the living room of the home. Brianna and Adam would talk to Patricia about the man with the tall hat from outside and the fire. Patricia just thought they, they had an invisible friend, and since this man with the tall hat was something, 
They saw outside. She just made sure to keep an extra watch on the children while they played outdoors, just in case there really was a man outside with a tall hat who was a real-life stranger. Patricia had no idea why Adam would talk about the fire that lived where Patricia's house was. One day she asked him. Because the dog that lived here was in the fire, Adam said, and his owner is looking for him. Patricia was baffled and didn't really know what to say. So she redirected Adam to helping her make cookies for a snack in the kitchen. About a year later, some children moved in next door that were about the same age as Adam and Brianna. One afternoon, the little boy from next door came over to play and ended up staying to eat pizza dinner with them. When it came time to go home, the boy asked Patricia if she could watch him go, you know, go home. The tall man with the big hat stands up on the ridge in your backyard between my house and yours, the boy said. The tall man with the big hat makes me feel uncomfortable. Patricia walked with him to the yard's edge, and the boy ran to his front door as fast as he could. Patricia wondered about this man with the tall hat now, since her grandchildren had spoken of him, and now the children next door were also talking about him. So the next weekend, Patricia asked Brianna what the man in the tall hat looked like. He's tall and not skinny, but not fat either, Brianna said. He wears old-timey clothes and has a hat like a man at the circus. He has white hair, and he stands and watches us outside. Brianna made a face. He looks mean. Then she said there was a lady looking for her dog. She talks to Adam, Brianna said, and she told him the dog was in a fire where we live. Patricia thought this was odd because the house was newly constructed and never been on fire. One day, Patricia was out in her backyard when the older couple from two doors down came over to show her some old foot pictures they had found in the neighborhood and street. They even got had photos of the house Patricia lived in being built. In one photo, there was a house that appeared to be in the same place as Patricia's. She asked the neighbors about the house in the photo. There was a house exactly where yours was, was built, they told her and it had a basement. The house burned down after the woman who lived there left her iron on in the basement, and the house caught fire and burned to the ground. Did anyone get hurt? Patricia asked. No, the couple said. Except for the woman's dog. It perished in the fire. The lot sat empty for many years. Finally, when some builder bought when some builder bought it, they, they bulldozed the foundation and filled in the basement before building your house right on top of it. Patricia stood frozen. She could hardly believe what she was hearing. She reflected back to Adam talking about the fire and the dog. When Patricia had lived in the home for almost seven years, it started to get to be more than she could handle. Patricia had a stroke that affected her balance and ability to handle her activities of daily living. So Lacey moved Patricia into a smaller place. Lacey and her brother hired a maid to come in weekly to clean and wash Patricia's clothes. Lacey would come and take her grocery shopping and to doctor's appointments. Patricia liked her new home, and she had several old, other older single ladies close by to visit with. Lacey opted to purchase Patricia's home as a piece of investment property. The home, although newer, needed some repairs. Lacey planned to do as much as she could herself so as to save money. Lacey finally got all the items moved out of the home and had started to take out the carpets to put down wooden flooring. While she was there, she had a sensation of being watched. She ignored the feeling after. After all, she was there all alone. Lynn was friends with Lacey and offered to help her do some painting and wallpaper removal. This was Lynn's first time to the house. Lynn walked in the door and immediately felt an aching sensation in the lower back of her head. 
holding the back of her head, Lynn announced herself. The room was empty. It echoed as Lacey responded, I'm in the laundry room. Lynn walked over and stood in the doorway, then asked, Did your mom fall on her head in the back? In back? I'm feeling a sharp pain right here. Lynn pointed to the lower part of her head. Yes, Lacey said. My mother had falls, but I don't remember her hitting her head. Although I did recently take her to the hospital for a CT scan of her head, because her balance was off and she couldn't walk without her walker. They found out she had a massive stroke in her cerebellum that she never mentioned to anyone. She said she remembered having a terrible headache that Tylenol didn't touch, as she lay down and prayed, then fell asleep. When she woke up, she had trouble with her balance and would veer to the it would veer to the side when she walked. No one noticed because she was able to hide it with her walker. Lynn went into the kitchen to fill her steamer with water and noticed a male spirit with a tall hat pacing back and forth in the dining area. He had on a coat with a longer tail and back. His hands were clutched behind his back at waist level. Based on his clothes, the man looked to be from the early to mid-1800s. Hello, Lynn said. The man stopped, looked at her, and then continued to pace back and forth. Lynn left the kitchen and entered the dining room. She stopped to set her steamer on the countertop. As she did so, she felt against her leg an area that was about the size of a trash can lid, with air blowing outward from it, and a feeling of a fine string or cobwebs blowing into the room. They tickled against her leg. Did someone pass away in this house? Lynn asked Lacey. Yes, Lacey said, right there in the living room. That explains it, Lynn said. Explains what, Lacey asked. Lynn told her there was a portal opening near the counter in the dining room. It made sense that the living room was, was directly on the other side. Lynn went around to the living room side of the portal and felt the vacuuming feeling against her leg again. It was directly on the opposite side of where she had felt the previous sensation. Well, this is where their soul went through, Lynn told Lacey. She didn't say anything about the man with the tall hat. Lynn went into the master bedroom and started to remove the wallpaper. She talked to Lacey while she worked. Lacey, meanwhile, was taking up the carpet and pulling down and putting down wooden flooring in the master bedroom. Lacey was telling Lynn about what all was needed to be done to the outside of the house when they heard a door slam shut. Then they heard the door open and slam shut again and again. Lynn poked her head out of the bathroom door. Lacey was in the master bedroom. It sounds like someone's here, Lynn said. Lacey got up to see who was slamming the door. It was nothing, she said when she returned. The door continued to slam again and again. It's the door between the laundry room and the kitchen, Lacey said. It's a ghost. Is it the man with the tall hat, Lynn asked. Yes, Lacey said. How did you know? Because I met him earlier in the dining room, Lynn replied. He was pacing with his hands behind his back. My kids have always spoken of him, Lacey said. However, he is usually seen outside. And the other ghost is a lady looking for her dog. I haven't met that one yet, Lynn said. Me either, said Lacey. Then she continued telling Lynn about the history of the house that occupied the lot before Patricia's house was built. How it had burned to the ground, and the prior homeowner's dog had perished in the fire. And her ghost comes looking for it, Lacey said. How do you know the lady is looking for her dog, Lynn asked. The lady communicates with Adam, Lacey said. He's the one who told me. Lynn told Lacey about the open portal she felt earlier. Whoever died in this house must have gone through there, Lynn said. The head of this house, the head of his hospice bed when he died was up against that wall, Lacey said. 
The door slammed two more times. They ignored it and continued talking. Before leaving that day, Lynn stood near the portal and said out loud in the room, For anyone here, I will be back tomorrow to assist any souls who wish to cross over. This is like a one-time chance deal. If you don't take my offer to help, you can continue to be stuck here interdimensionally for an eternity. If the lady looking for her dog can hear me, you will find your dog and your loved ones on the other side. And to the man in the tall hat, it's time to cross over. It's obvious you've been here for at least a century. Anything or anyone that you are looking for or waiting for here on Earth has gone home a long time ago. Think about it. I'll be back in the morning. Lynn returned to Patricia's house the next day with some spiritual supplies. The woman looking for her dog was present, and the man with the tall hat paced from corner to corner of the living room. Lynn asked the woman to help put the man at ease. Nothing bad is going to happen here, Lynn said, but he can still choose not to cross over and stay earthbound. Lynn could sense his reluctance. Lynn said a prayer, calling in the soul's guides and asked them to assist with the transition. Look upward, Lynn instructed the lost souls, and connect with the golden ray as, as soon as you see it. The act will feel natural and comforting. Once connected, you will go home. The woman, the woman looked up immediately and faded in a flash of shimmering gold light. The man was stubborn. He was still not sure. Lynn asked for one of the loved ones of the man with the tall hat to come forward and encourage him. Someone familiar to him, Lynn said. Lynn went about her day of removing wallpaper in the kitchen. By the time she finished that afternoon, she didn't see the man with the tall hat anymore. Lynn never found out if the man with the tall hat crossed over. It, it is possible that he still resides there frightening children who come by to play. Regardless, Lacey said Patricia's house Lacey sold Patricia's house without further incidents. Chapter twelve Alien Encounters. Again, if you like what you hear, show me some love. Um, tap that double tap that screen TikTok. I'm I'm shooting for three thousand likes today, three thousand likes and show me some love. Facebook and YouTube, I'd really appreciate it. And Again, we got 50 Lucy the Llama up there, too. If you can find it in your heart to do that, you're not required to. Alien Encounters. Non-human things that live among the people on Earth can take many forms. Lynn was working a 12-hour night shift as a nurse in, in an upscale skilled unit of a long-term facility. She worked there a total of 10 years. She loved her job. It enabled her to build a rapport not only with the clients, but with her families, too. She came on her shift at 7 p.m. and received the report from the outgoing nurse. Lynn made rounds on the clients. Most were preparing to settle in for the night. She knocked on each door, verifying that each person was present and in good condition. The clients loved to see Lynn. She would always take time to visit with them and make sure they were comfortable with everything they needed. Lynn completed her rounds at around 8.30 p.m. and dimmed the hallway lights. Then she headed back up the hallway, to talk about the client's vital signs. She had 24 clients. At around 9.30 p.m., Lynn prepared for her nighttime medication pass. She took a fully charged blood pressure machine, thermometer, and pulse ox oximeter and loaded them onto her cart. She filled her pitcher with fresh water. Then she started down the hallway to administer the sleeping and pain meds. Lynn stopped at the first room and noticed an odd glow at the very end of the hallway. She went into the room. When she came back out, the glow was no longer there. Lynn thought nothing of it. Lynn was about halfway down the hallway. <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> the member at the end of the hallway called and told 
the nursing assistant, who answered her light that she was ready for her nightly medication. The assistant notified Lynn. Lynn, it was around 10 p.m. The client had been a new admission to the unit a month earlier. Lynn pushed her cart down the hallway near the room. She prepared the client's medication and grabbed the blood pressure machine, then headed to her room. The client was due to have a cardiac medication, and Lynn needed to obtain her blood pressure before giving it. Lynn knocked on the door jam since the door was wide open. The dim light in the hallway was enough for Lynn to see the client without turning on the overhead light, which would have been too bright at that hour. The client was lying on her bed on her side, facing the door. She was happy to see Lynn and invited her in. Lynn entered the room, and to her surprise, the client was not the only one in the room. At first, Lynn was a bit startled to see the five equally sized beings that appeared space-like, with identical space uniforms and a light color standing behind the client's bed. They stood at her back, diligently working on the client. It appeared they were plugging and unplugging things into and out of her. It reminded Lynn of an old-fashioned switchboard-type movement. Lynn, not knowing what to say, thought her presence in the room would be enough to make them leave. But they didn't. They ignored Lynn and continued working, as if behind a veil. It seemed that the beings went close to the client. They could, they, they could be seen even better. And when they were farther away from her, they would fade. Their faces were covered with what appeared to be the same material as the uniform, yet it seemed to be thinner. No facial features could be detected. Lynn tried her best to act as if she didn't notice and focus on the client, who she did not want to alarm in any way. The client's name was Ellie. She was the one that Lynn enjoyed getting, going, going to see. Ellie was always good-humored and would have a good story to tell. Lynn found Ellie's appearance to be similar to that of a wild-eyed rabbit. Her eyes seemed to be larger than most. Perhaps it was because she would open her eyes so wide that it was as if her eyeballs were bulging out. Her skin was ashen due to a blood, due to a blood issue. Lynn set her things down on Ellie's bedside table and applied the blood pressure cuff. She pressed the button to obtain Ellie's blood pressure. The machine started to blow up the cuff, then stopped. Lynn tried again. It was fully charged when she had entered the room. The low battery light came on and then went out. Lynn stepped back and saw a nursing assistant in the hallway nearby. She asked her to bring another blood pressure machine. The assistant unplugged one from the wall nearby and brought it to the room and exchanged blood, and exchanged blood pressure cuffs for Lynn. Lynn double-checked. The battery was fully charged. Lynn attempted once again to obtain Ellie's blood pressure. When she pressed the button, the low battery came on. Low battery light came on again. I don't know why, but the blood pressure machines don't seem to want to work tonight, Lynn told Ellie. Lynn took Ellie's blood pressure manually. All the while, these beings were still in the room, working on Ellie. They pulled things out and put them back in different places, from her head to her feet. Lynn picked up Ellie's cup of pills and moved forward. At that moment... One of the beings walked around to the side of the bed Lynn was standing on and walked right through her. Lynn felt an odd tingling energy rushing through her. Excuse me, Lynn gasped, taken aback. The being ignored her and did something with Ellie's head, then walked back around to the other side of the bed with the other four beings. That's okay, dear, Ellie said. No need for, ex or for excuse me. Lynn gave Ellie her medication and water, then placed her call bell in reach. Is there anything else you need, Lynn asked. Ellie said there wasn't, then left the room. The strange beings remained. It took Lynn every bit of strength she had to remain calm for the client. Lynn got to the nurse's station and reflected on what she had seen. 
Each being had been about five feet tall. There were, there were five of them. All were the same height and build. All wore identical light-colored space-type suits. Their suits were white or pale gray. Their faces were covered with the same material as the suits they wore, but thinner. They seemed to be able to see through it. The top of the head covering came to a point that lay back creased at the top of the head, horizontally from ear to ear, if they'd had ears. Then it was loosely folded to the back of the head, similar to an envelope flap. It, it created a squared-off appearance from their front. They stood upright and had humanoid bodies with arms and legs and walked upright. Lynn checked on Ellie 30 minutes later to follow up on the effectiveness of her pain relief. When she entered the room, the beings were gone and Ellie was asleep, still on her side, facing the door. Lynn had never seen the beings before in any of the other 23 rooms, nor had she ever seen beings like that before in her life. Lynn worked in various hallways, but she mostly worked in that one that Ellie was in. Lynn had known the clients who had stayed in Ellie's room before, and nothing like this ever happened. Lynn finished her shift and didn't give it much more thought. Weeks went on to months with no other occurrence until about six months after the first incident. Lynn came on shift at 7 p.m. Ellie was being wheeled to the nurse's station by her husband. They had been out to dinner. She wanted to have her name put on the leftovers and then put them in the refrigerator. Lynn took the food and put it away for Ellie. Ellie's husband wheeled her down the hallway to her room. He stopped at the nurse's station as he was leaving and said that Ellie wanted someone to come in and get her ready for bed. She had a fun but exhausting evening, he said. Lynn asked the nursing assistant to go and help Ellie get ready for bed. Making sure to get a set of vital signs for her nighttime medication. Okay, make sure, sorry about that, make sure to get a set of vital signs for her nighttime medications, Lynn instructed. The nursing assistant settled Ellie into bed. Then she came back to the nursing station with all three of the new fully charged blood pressure machines, complaining that none of them were working right. They all said fully charged until I went to take Ellie's blood pressure, she said. Then the low battery light would come on. I couldn't get the pulse oximeter to work either. It also has a low battery reading. Lynn walked over to her med cart and handed the nursing assistant a manual blood pressure set. The nursing assistant returned with the vital signs and said that Ellie was ready for her night medications. Lynn prepared Ellie's nighttime medications and looked and took them down the hallway to her room. Lynn knocked on the doorframe as the door was wide open again. Ellie, once again, was lying on her side facing the door. Ellie had a small, low-light lamp in her room, and it was on. She invited Lynn in. There they were again, only this time there were only three. They wore the exact same spacesuits as before. The only difference this time was that while two were identical in height and stature, the third was about a foot taller and slender. All of them were plugging in and unplugging things on Ellie. Again, they ignored Lynn's presence. It was as if they were androids, or they must have thought Lynn could not see them behind the interdimensional veil. Lynn handed Ellie her cup of pills and then water with straw. Ellie told Lynn it was her 50th wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary, Lynn said. Ellie started to tell Lynn how she met her husband and that she regretted that they never had children. I wasn't able to, Ellie said. Lynn enjoyed hearing the story and made sure Ellie was comfortable before leaving the room. The three beings remained. When Lynn returned to Ellie's room 30 minutes later, they were still there. Ellie had rolled onto her back and was sleeping. Lynn turned off the lamp and left the room. She made rounds on Ellie two hours after that. The beings were gone the rest of the night. 
Lynn returned to work. Ellie's Hall for the entire two years she lived there, mostly without incident. However, Ellie's room was consistently the only room on the entire unit of 48 rooms that Lynn ever experienced such a thing with aliens, and it only happened while Ellie was a resident there. Lynn suspected Ellie was a hybrid. Her blood pressures always had to be taken manually because something about her would make any battery in the room die. She never had children, which Lynn later found out hybrids usually don't. She was also able to see interdimensionally. Ellie's ability was verified one night when Lynn was on shift, and it had snowed outside. Lynn decided to spice up the long night with a little fun, so she went outside and gathered some snow for a small snowball. She threw it at the leg of, of one of the male staff members working with her. He retaliated by getting a bigger snowball and throwing it back at Lynn. A few other staff decided to pitch in the fun while they waited to be called by clients during the night. One of the assistants answered a call to Ellie's room and relayed the message to Lynn that Ellie wanted her Tylenol. Lynn went with her med cart and poured the Tylenol and headed down to Ellie's room. As Lynn passed several rooms on her way, she felt an intense sensation of someone rushing up to her from behind. Thinking it was the male assistant sneaking up to hit her with a snowball again, she turned quickly and said, Boo! No one was there. Perplexed. Lynn continued down to Ellie's room. As she worked, as she walked, she felt an intense male energy behind her. So close it was as if they were walking on, on her heels. Lynn knocked on Ellie's door, then waited for permission to walk in. As soon as Lynn walked into Ellie's room, Ellie asked, Who is your friend? He's a busy fellow, isn't he? Lynn turned around, thinking one of the assistants had followed her into the room, but no one was there. She felt the intense energy leave. He just left, Ellie said. I don't know who it was, Lynn said. It was a ghost, said Ellie. I'm not surprised, Lynn replied, as she handed Ellie her Tylenol. I have seen several here, Ellie said, but that is the first time I have seen him, the one who followed you. Ever seen any aliens, Lynn asked? Ellie smiled and said, Have you? Just then, Lynn was called away to another room. Two months later, Lynn saw eight of the same identical beings in Ellie's room. Only this time, they appeared to step away when Lynn came into the room to medicate Ellie. Then she saw them one more time, two months before Ellie passed away in her sleep. Five beings of identical height attire. Once she died, Ellie's room was assigned to new clients. Lynn never saw the beings who had visited Ellie ever again in the facility. Looking back, Lynn would acknowledge that she had had an idea, had an alien experience. There was no other explanation. The aliens had come to see Ellie by manipulating their, the, the interdimensional veils. Somehow, they had brought their dimension to Ellie and worked anonymously through the veil, expecting not to be noticed. It also seemed that not only had they brought workers to her bedside, but they had come fully equipped with the instruments they needed to accomplish their mission, the recording of data. One of the nights that Lynn had seen the alien beings working on Ellie, she saw one walk over to a device that appeared to enter data, then return to Ellie's bedside, where, where, where the rest of the aliens continued to pull out and plug in along Ellie from head to toe. Several minutes later, after Ellie had passed away, Lynn was leaving her housing development when she observed a flying vessel in broad daylight. The vessel was agile for its size. It could come to a dead stop and redirect instantly. At first, Lynn thought it was something flying, somebody flying a large drone. But there was no one around except for a man riding his bike. He was also watching it. The vessel was flying at cloud level over a field. 
It was in full view when Lin first turned onto the main road. Then it started into a group of clouds. Lin stopped her van in the middle of the road, trying to figure out what it was. When it came back out of the cloud and near Lin's van, it stopped in midair and lowered itself, as if it was trying to get a closer look. The vessel was silent. It had no propellers and no obvious windows or doors. It was a muted silver color, and shaped like a long rod that appeared to go through an oval-shaped ball in the center of the rod, with the second rounder ball at midway point between the center end of the vessel. The ends of the vessel were circular balls as well. The vessel's ovular center was about the size of a small car. As it hovered before her, Liz started to feel uncomfortable. Don't pick me, she said to it. I'm sure if it could hear her from inside her vehicle. I have a child who still needs me. Lynn did not know who, what it was. She could not see any lettering on the vessel nor any numbers or symbols. The body of the ship appeared seamless with no rivets or bolts. It sat perfectly in midair. Lynn took out her phone to record the vessel. She held up the screen, only to find that the phone battery was depleted, despite being plugged into the charger in the van. Lynn frantically unplugged and replugged in her phone. Hoping, to, hope, hoping it's a charge, hoping for it to charge enough for her to at least get a photo. As Lynn plugged her phone in once again, desperately hoping to capture the ship, the vessel went from a dead stop to suddenly flying away very quickly. Lynn could still see it a distance away as it blended into some more clouds. The man who was riding his bike watched the vessel as it was by them. He was so distracted by the flying object that he almost rode in Lynn's van. He stopped, just in time, and apologized. Did you see that, he asked. Yes, Lynn replied. I'm not sure what it was. I've never seen a drone like that. Neither have I, the man said. It seemed to be coming near you. I tried to take a picture of it, but I couldn't because my phone died. I was watching, I was watching it for a while before you pulled out onto the street. I thought it was acting peculiar, so I decided since it was headed in this direction. I was taking home. Then I would follow it for as long as I could. When I first saw it, I was halfway through my bike ride on the trail. I could see it darting in and out of clouds. It disappeared once and then reappeared about 20 minutes later. That's when I decided to pull over and take a picture, but couldn't. Just then, the vessel darted from the cloud cluster to cloud cluster, zigzagging in and out. Then, in a clear part of the sky, a flash of light filled up the area between the clouds. The vessel was gone. It had disappeared in midair. The man looked at Lynn and said, I think it was a UFO. Lynn nodded and said, it seems that way. Chapter 13, Interdimensional Viewing and Traveling Between the Dimensions. If you like what you see today, please double tap that screen. I'm going for 3,000 likes. Double tap that screen. Same with you guys. Show me some love over there on Facebook and, and, and uh, YouTube. Show me some love. Chapter 13, Interdimensional Viewing and Traveling Between Dimensions. We are reading Omnipresent, What Happened Next by Lynn Monet. In the vast multiverse, entities are referred to as extra-dimensional beings. Extra-dimensional beings are unique to their planes, of which there, are, of which there are 12 that we know about, though some believe there are 19 or even more. Upper planes all exist at the same time and occupy the same space. They have seven lower circles. Each has their own energetic frequency, color, and vibration. Frequency refers to the state of awakening and consciousness. Vibration refers to the energetic source or light within humans 
that they resonate. A human can physically be on the third dimension and raise or decrease their vibration through their conscious decisions and actions. In other words, a physically grounded third dimension person can be on the fifth dimension because their consciousness is there. This is called ascension. In this third reality, it is often a hard task to evolve from its hold. It takes a lot of determination, enlightenment, and constant actions that are greatly rewarded. As stated in a previous chapter, every soul seeks this ascension spiritually, whether they know it or not. It is a subtle hung hunger, a craving for the ambrosia. This is ignored by many and often dulled out by addictive behaviors. Addictive behaviors are third dimension and lower. Such behaviors can hold a soul in the fourth dimension after death. Needless to say, it's very important to address one's denial of addiction, if they have one, and clean it up here on earth before passing. Some cross over and some do not. It depends on the level of addiction, what type, and if the soul desires help or not. These are not my views. These are views of the author. Okay? And again, we are a rated PG-13, rated R channel. If there's something here you don't agree with, we're paranormal all the time, right? We talk paranormal topics. If there's something you don't agree with, please do not turn me into the TikTok police. Just move on. There's, there's a lot of other people out there doing stuff, okay? Humans can have energetic and astral access to the first five dimensions from the third dimension. Earth is a third dimensional space, unfortunately. Many humans are comfortable remaining at the third level and prefer to stay in their limited awareness. They don't advance. And some, of their, and, some of their, and some of the time, lower their vibration. It's all about choice in a realm in which there is no discrimination and equal opportunity for all. A multiverse does not mean that all entities are allowed on each plane. For instance, demons and aliens are not permitted past the fourth dimension. This is what we call the heavenly planes, or the other side. Demon forms can also be seen traveling through the underground ley lines in and out of earthly veils from the darkness often created by vortices or man-made negligence. This is what's believed by ghost hunters as well. Ley lines. The upcoming and new generations will be able to surpass even the fifth dimension. These generations are referred to as the indigo children, who were born between 1978 and 1988, and the crystal children, mostly born in the 1990s. When nurtured by their surroundings and encouraged to do so, people born of this generation have the ability to travel, excuse me, many planes energetically. They are able to be in two or more planes at the same time. They will be able to attain the ascension that a lot of people on earth seek but never find. Having this ability to peer into this alternate reality is known as interdimensional viewing. Interdimensional viewing is an ability all are born with, and it is not exclusive to humans. Often, because of one's upbringing, this ability to see interdimensionally can be shut down at an early age. I can agree. That I agree with. In society, children who voice what they see interdimensionally are often told they're not seeing anything, that nothing is there, or that ghosts do not exist. Some may be told it's a deceased loved one or a guardian angel watching over them. Others are disciplined by their family or church for having this ability. Psychological studies have shown that children between birth and age five do not have the mental filters known as discernment. Not having these filters in place from a spiritual standpoint allows them to effortlessly access different interdimensional planes, especially the one they have just recently come from. 
these filters, discernment, separate our earthly plane from the multiverse. The filters thicken as the child gets older, often showing, often slowing or, or decreasing the child's ability to see interdimensionally through puberty. How much of their ability to remain grounded in both planes is maintained depends on how a child is nurtured and supported by the important figures around them. People's filters are thinnest at each end of their life, yes. Children are born with the ability to see interdimensionally, and people who are on the other end of the spectrum, who are preparing to leave this earthly plane, have, th have thinner filters separating the dimensions as well. A person, nears the end of, a person near the end of life, sorry, as a person nears the end of life, their mental filter softens again to allow them to prepare to move on to the next dimension. When a child has an invisible friend or speaks of seeing someone that adults cannot, it is often because the child, with their lack of mental filter, perceives spirits or beings from another plane. This interdimensional ability can often be in inferred with by others, telling the child that their invisible friend is not real or not there. It is always important to make sure the invisible friend is not making the child feel uncomfortable or asking him to do something they would get in trouble for. There are many kinds of spirit, and some are not always what they appear to be. The filters continuously thicken as a child approaches age five. This is the stage where most children do not speak of their invisible friend as much. On the other hand, for people who are preparing to leave this earthly plane, the thickened filters will effus gradually until the filter is completely gone. Spirits communicate with, with thought waves. They can hear when being spoken to out loud. They can hear conversations between embodied souls. They can help when asked. Loved ones who have crossed over and the angelic realm like helping. However, since their vibration is higher than those on earth, they can only enter this plane to assist when things on the earthly realm are in a calmer state. For instance, if one is crying or angry, the approach of loved ones from the other side can intensify the emotion. Therefore, the spirit realm must pull back and wait for a less emotional time to approach. The saying that a spirit loved one can often help an embodied loved one more on the other side than they could when they were on earth is true. It is unfortunate, but many embodied souls take the easy route through life and choose not to evolve. They never regain their ability to both see and hear internationally. They remain fearful of seeing spirits. They stay stuck, or worse, they become darker. They only get to experience a view, experience and view the effects of one's reality, which they have left the body and crossed over. Ascension is not given. It's not a given. Palm Beach College professor Raymond W. Sweet, Ph.D., who had a near-death experience, stated that after leaving his body, the ability to view interdimensionally opened for him. While he was in between the veils of the multiverse, he was able to energetically view into six planes equally at one time. I was floating comfortably in the tunnel, Sweet said. If you like what you hear, double tap that screen. As he floated along the interdimensional tunnel, he was viewing each of, his, each of his five out of six remaining children and his new wife all at the same time. I could feel their emotions and what my death's significance would be to each one, he said. It was as if I was standing with each one of them. He went so far as to describe what, he, what, he, what, he, what each of his children were wearing and what they were doing at the moment. Being beyond the interdimensional curtain, 
he was able to glance into each of his children's futures. He realized that each of his children would be okay if he stayed on the other side. However, his new wife was from a different country and was still getting acclimated to American life, so she could not even drive yet. I was given the option to return, Sweet said, and I did. Once he came back into his body, his ability to see interdimensionally subsided, yet he could still recall everything that happened in his experience. Sometimes, increasing one's ability to discern beyond earthly, the earthly realm is as simple as acknowledging the realization of other dimensional beings. All people have seen interdimensional beings. They often are not aware of it being what it was. The spirit realm walks among us. Some people have a stronger sensitivity than others. Most people who see a spirit will respond with fear or discomfort. This fear is the main reason people cannot see their loved ones who have crossed over. Oftentimes, loved ones have to wait to make their assistance known because of the emotional state that the embodied soul is experiencing at that time. If the still-embodied person is sad, the sadness will be increased as the spirit gets closer to assist. It's not the spirits, it's not that the spirits don't hear their loved ones. When the loved one asks for help, because they do, okay, they just don't want to ex exasperate the situation and make it worse. Some earthly religions teach that when a person sees a spirit, even if it is comforting and familiar, such as a loved one, that the spirit is a demon and should be shunned. Traditional religions do not want to upset the status quo. They teach people to shun anything different from the interpretation of the Holy Bible that their congregation uses. Again, we are rated PG-13, rated R, okay? If you don't like what you're hearing, just move on. Do not turn me into TikTok police. If this doesn't match up with, with your, your personal beliefs, don't turn me into anybody. This is her opinion and her research. I, you know, it is what it is, okay? But uh, don't, 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 don't go there. Traditional religion teaches followers to be afraid because of the church's own fear of losing the money of the followers who attend. The church relies on its followers' money to exist. Religion is a huge money-making process. Too bad they do not have, st have stock that one could invest in. It would be a great investment with constant gains. The Bible has been changed and altered a great deal over the last 2,000 years. What exists now, which are used in the present-day churches, are copies. The first of these present-day copies were made hundreds of years after the events of the Bible took place. The first Bibles were handmade. There were no printing presses or technology that we have today to ensure that all copies were identical. This led to omissions, errors, and many different versions. Some people believe there have been no changes made to the Bible over the centuries. However, when King James I of England commissioned his translation of the Bible, he gave specific instructions to his translators about which sources to use and what content to omit. The books, uh, see if I get this right, the books of the, books of, of the Apocrypha, Apocrypha, I'm trying, <laughs> were removed from the King James the first version around 1769. This is the version all Christian religions today base their benefits on, their beliefs on, sorry. In addition, to the removal of information. There have been discoveries of other ancient documents that conflict with existing biblical canon as well. Multiple biblical translations were derived from the Textus Receptus, as each translation of the Bible, modern or otherwise, was done by different people. 
but undoubtedly inconsistencies between them. Despite this, it seems most Christians in the world believe their Bible is the correct one, unaware of the extent of how much may have been omitted or mistranslated. This is true. Some of the highest plans are not open to human souls. The twelfth dimension in numerology is the combination of numbers one and two joined. The number one is the fusion of unity, and two is duality. The earth humans live on this third live on this is the third dimension or three dimensional. I don't know what that was. Thank you, whatever that was. On the current planet of Earth, people are embodied to function with their surroundings. On other planes, human-type bodies may or may not be needed. Some beings travel purposefully between dimensions with ease and can appear either embodied or disembodied, whichever is needed in their purpose. Let me have a drink of water real quick, guys. It's warm. There we go. Me, 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 me. Okay. For instance, has anyone ever wondered how a very large, extremely smelly being such as Bigfoot can become odorless and completely disappear when cornered? According to multiple sources, there have been 1,300 sightings in the state of Pennsylvania, 2,032 in Washington state, and 1,340 in California in 2019. These sightings have been photographed by people. Witnesses have reported that these sightings have an overwhelming methane smell that can be recognized from significant distances away. There is evidence of footprints, yet in an instant, Bigfoot can disappear, smell and all, when pursued by people trying to trap them. Perhaps Bigfoot can evade. Let me check something because I don't know what that sound was. Give me a second. Make sure we're on here. Okay. Yeah, we're still there. Okay. Perhaps Bigfoot can evade capture because it has the ability to travel multidimensionally. It is able to enter through the dimensional curtain or veil and go between planes through portals at will. Or at least uses the veil separating the planes for camouflage. Bigfoot can, can enter portals and transport to other locations and then exit through a different portal in the desired location. Even in this modern day and age, where awareness is heightened, traditional religion does not support the possibility of this interdimensional travel. They continue to shun it. Children learn to deny it, to fit it with the norm. The longer they're disconnected from their ability, the less familiar they are with it. Most people end up becoming terrified of entities from other realms and avoid even talking about such things because it, just, it disturbs them or they find it creepy. But they really know that such things exist, whether they admit it or not. When look directly, uh, directly, excuse me, the frequently shifts. One who is not experienced and open to seeing will see nothing, yet the vision one had in the peripherals will still be there. Both the frontal and interdimensional viewing and peripheral viewer can be enhanced. This happens through meditation, silencing one's mind, acknowledging the ability without fear or anticipation, and prayer to one's higher source. There is a difference between seeing interdimensionally and seeing entities from other dimensions on the Earth plane. Seeing interdimensionally is the ability to peer into other dimensions in the multiverse from one's earthbound state. Seeing entities from other planes here on Earth's plane is the ability to see the frequencies those entities have on the Earth's plane. 
Each person has their own unique frequency. When the entities are seen on the Earth's plane as frequencies, they often create a waffling effect in the air. Sometimes one might see a limb or face peeking through the veil, then an entire body. Some will appear through the veil separating the planes, others may appear through, the, through portals, and some are wandering souls that are stuck earthbound. A soul choosing not to cross over and staying earthbound creates issues for inhabitants of the earth plane. The earthbound soul often loses their way and ends up inhabiting one's home as an unwelcome guest. Other types of entities come through portals, such as aliens and demons. Aliens sometimes use the interdimensional veils between planes to camouflage. They camouflage their spaceships when in the sky. They work through the veil to manipulate experiments on the Earth and collect samples from earthly animals, such as the documented cow, such as documented cow mutilations all over the world. They watch the human species through the veil, and in Lynn's experience, check in with humanoid-looking aliens that have been placed here on Earth and living amongst humans. Demons use interdimensional vortex-type portals that are created by energetic ley lines for the energy pools. This is true. This is, I'm not saying it's true. I'm saying this is what we found in our investigations. They use these and man-made portals as well for travel. The portals that are opened by man can occur innocently. They can be opened with an Ouija board. Ouija boards should never be used by someone who does not understand their capability and should not be used for rec recreation. I agree. A person also needs to understand that once the portal is open, the entities or spirits that one calls in may, choose, may not choose to leave. And with that portal left open, more can follow. These portals do not close automatically once they're open. Portals can also be created off of ley lines for entry into other realms. The energetic flow of the ley lines naturally encircles the earth as a geometric grid-like formation, as originally taught by Plato 2,500 years ago. The energy is strongest where ley lines cross each other, creating energy vortexes. Yes. Many ancient historical sites have been built on ley lines. It is believed that areas such as Machu Picchu in Peru were built directly on the electromagnetic current for a purpose that is not known. Ley lines are like the Earth's veins that emit electromagnetic waves. Portals, which are different than vortexes, are spiritual openings, like a doorway or exit ramp off of the ley lines. Ley lines seem to correlate with star constellations and appear to be geographic straight lines between sacred sites that are magnetically measurable. It is believed by some that the ley lines and vortexes are used by aliens for travel. The electromagnetic fields can be seen by aliens from the sky. The vortexes can then be used as landing pads or entrances to the Earth. Many UFO sightings are seen regularly near these points throughout the world, according to experts. They are able to travel between the dimensions and camouflage themselves with the interdimensional veils that separate the dimensions. Most humans have the ability to do this when they leave their bodies. However, there are some humans on Earth that have evolved through enlightening practices, which enables them to see between the veils. Humans can maintain this ability from childhood. Their souls also can relearn it. Embodied souls who elevate their frequencies through prayer and spiritual evolvement can travel interdimensionally during their dreams, meditations, and intended astral projections. 
Often, they can communicate with loved ones and entities they come across. They can receive guidance from glorious masters and teachers from the heavenly realm. It takes consistent work and dedication on the embodied soul's part to achieve this and follow the flow of what one's mind contains at the present moment. If, in the present moment, a person's mind is generating hatred, animosity, jealousy, ill will, resentment, or other harmful thoughts, the effect of these thoughts will manifest on them first. In other words, if one contains negativity and is generating the negativity, they are the first victim of their own negativity. They will be miserable. A person cannot expect peace, harmony, joy, and happiness when they are generating negativity. I'll buy that. When a person generates negativity, they often blame outside sources as the cause. They may find fault with others. One may be under the wrong impression that one is miserable because a significant other or other person abused them or insulted them. Or perhaps something one wanted did not happen. Or something one did not want did happen. People remain deluded for their entire life here on earth, influenced by the negativity of external reasons. They avoid going within oneself to observe the reality and real cause of one's misery. Similarly, when a person's mind is full of and generates goodwill, compassion, and love genuinely, and without expectation, one begins to experience more happiness, harmony, joy, and peace. As it is stated on Varala.org, suppose someone abuses me and I become miserable. Between these two events, something very important happens inside me. But that link remains unknown to me. When someone abuses me, I start generating anger and hatred. I start reading with negativity. Only then do I become miserable, not because somebody has abused me, nor because something unwanted has happened. Rather, it's because I am reaching to these outside things. This is the real cause of my misery. You cannot understand me. It is important to control one's thoughts as spoken words for one's own benefit. One should manifest great things for oneself. And that was the end of the book. We just completed it. And we're going to read about the author real quick. And that's going to do it for this week. So, chapter 14 about the author. This is it. Lynn was born in May of 63 in Sarasota, Florida. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Her family moved to the east coast of Florida when she was two years old. Her family was Presbyterian and attended church on Sundays. Her mother, Phyllis, was a licensed beautician who became a housewife and stay-at-home mother after marrying Lynn's father. Lynn's father, Wayne, was a well-educated, hard-working man who had served in the United States Army during World War II as a paratrooper medic. He had a bachelor's degree in chemistry and a master's degree in and PhD in mathematics. He taught math at the local junior college during the day and night classes at the university. He sometimes also taught classes at the jail for extra money to take care of his family. Lynn had five siblings, a half-sister, Mary Frances, half-brother Russell, from her father's first marriage. They lived with their mother in Iowa. Lynn lived with her parents and other three siblings, her oldest sister, Linda, and youngest sister, Robin and their brother, Ryan. <laughs> it's got something just flashed out. I'm just looking at it. Who was the second child? Lynn was the third child of those four. The house they grew up in was haunted. Incidents started to occur almost immediately when they moved in. The home was a cement brick home with, vault, with vaulted ceilings and a tile roof. It had large palm trees in the, in the front yard. 
with a carpool on a quiet street. Lynn's father loved the house, and he wanted to live near the ocean, and this house was only four miles away from the beach. A bike ride would take at most 30 minutes to get there. Lynn's house was four short blocks directly behind a hospital and a nursing home. The facilities paralleled each other. Only a service road separated them. On the other side of the hospital were woods, in which, it was later discovered, were Indian burial mounds. Often, spirits would be seen passing through Lynn's home wearing patient gowns or appearing as Indians or Spanish soldiers. One night, Lynn, who shared a bedroom with her brother Ryan, was sleeping on the lower bunk of, her bunk beds, of their bunk beds when she was awakened by her bed trembling. The wind outside was blowing as a thunderstorm swiftly moved in. The windows in her room had lacy see-through window coverings on them, so every flash of lightning lit up the bedroom. She lay there, unable to sleep. A decorative picture of a soldier boy with a cannon Phyllis had made had been newly hung on the bedroom wall between the cloths of the doorway. Each time the lightning flashed, Lynn's bed tremored and made the soldier picture appear to be moving in the dark. The thunder boomed loudly. The frightened Lynn, this frightened Lynn to the point that she was frantically screamed out that she frantically screamed out in the middle of the night for her mother. Phyllis came to her bedroom to see what was wrong. Lynn was very upset. The soldier, is sh the soldier is shooting at me, Lynn said. Phyllis turned on the light and showed Lynn the picture was not real. It's not shooting at you, Phyllis said. Lynn, not fully convinced, asked for a drink of water. Phyllis returned with a glass of water and gave it to Lynn, who took two sips and handed the glass back. Before turning off the light, Phyllis reassured Lynn that the picture was not real. Lynn lay back down and tried to fall asleep. She tossed and turned, ending up facing a wall where she was not able to see the picture of the soldier boy. Her covers were pulled up to her nose. As she lay there, clutching her doll, her bed once again started to tremor. It seemed a little more vigorous this time, and Ollie was not in sync with the lightning and thunder. Lynn thought perhaps it was her brother readjusting the bunk overhead. She sat up in her bed and whispered to Ryan, Are you awake? with no response. Lynn lay back down again and noticed the soldier was turned diagonally just then. Or the, picture, the soldier picture was turned diagonally. Just then, lightning struck near her bedroom window. This rumbling sounded like cannons. Lynn covered her face and started to scream for her mother, this time waking her brother too. Phyllis came down the hallway and turned the light on. The picture had straightened itself back to a vertical position. Lynn started to cry and begged to have the soldier boy picture taken out of the room. Phyllis removed it from the wall and showed Lynn that it was not real. Lynn was not satisfied and pleaded again to have it gone. Phyllis took it off the wall and placed it on the floor, leaning against the same wall, with the picture's back facing Lynn so that she could no longer see the soldier boy. Lynn decided to take advantage of her mother standing right there and went to use the bathroom. When Lynn returned, Phyllis kissed her goodnight, turned off the light, and left the room. When Lynn woke up the next morning, the soldier boy picture was still sitting on the floor, leaning on the wall, only it was turned back around facing her bed. Lynn got up quickly and exited the room. She was the first one awake that morning, so she went to her sister Linda's room and sat on the floor next to her sister's bed while Linda slept. Next is the carousel lamp. Phyllis had found a beautiful carousel lamp with horses all the way around it at a yard sale. She thought to herself how much her oldest daughter loved horses and decided to buy it for her. Phyllis brought it home and put it in Linda's room. Linda really liked the lamp and was thrilled to have it. The lamp had a concerning detail. 
and would shock Linda whenever she touched it. Linda would cheerfully report the incidents to her parents, who finally came into Linda's room and unplugged the lamp. The lamp, after being unplugged, continued to shock her when touched. Linda again reported this to her parents. They started not to believe her and treated her as if she was making it up. Finally, Linda was in her room one day while her parents were close by. When Linda touched the lamp, she reacted with pain. Her parents overheard and entered the room to see if she was all right. Linda stood there with her eyes full of tears and reported again that the lamp had shocked her. Wayne checked to see if someone had plugged the light back in. It was still unplugged. He touched the lamp and drew back quickly. I got shocked, he said to Phyllis. The lamp was removed and Linda never saw it again. Ryan's best friend. Linda was five years old. She and her brother Ryan were in their parents' master bedroom. Ryan was playing with his cars on the terrazzo floor, and Lynn was looking in her mother's jewelry box that sat, that sat on the dresser. She turned to show Ryan the pretty necklace she had, put, she had put on when she noticed Ryan sitting very still, staring into the corner of the room. Lynn looked into the corner to see what her brother was so fixated on. In the corner of the room, a mist started to thicken and grow. Movement could be seen within the mist. As they watched, the mist opened. Ryan's best friend, John, along with his entire family, stepped into the room through the misty cloud. Ryan and Lynn sat looking at them. John was standing in front of his mother, father, and two siblings, and all were smiling at Ryan. Then they started to softly glow and disappeared. They never said a word. Lynn and Ryan simultaneously ran out of the room in different directions, looking for their mother. Ryan found her first. Come quickly, Ryan said. My friend John and his family are in your bedroom. No. Did, did, you, did you let them in, Phyllis asked? No, Ryan replied. I wonder who did and why they're in my room, Phyllis said. I didn't hear anyone knock. She quickly straightened her outfit and hair and then walked swiftly into her bedroom. When Phyllis entered the bedroom, no one was there. She became upset. Are you playing a joke on me, she asked Ryan. No, Ryan said. They were right in that corner, and they were standing there smiling. Then they disappeared. His mother did not believe him and chastened him for making up such a story. Lynn feared her mother's anger and stayed quiet while lingering in the doorway of the bedroom. I'm not waking it up, Ryan insisted, but his mom threatened to spank him for lying. Ryan was in the second grade with John. The day after seeing John and his family in the master bedroom, Ryan went to school and looked for his best buddy on the bus. He was not there, but neither were any of his siblings. When Ryan arrived at school, John was not at his desk either. John's and Ryan's desks had always been next to each other. Ryan knew that John's parents had taken John and his siblings on a family trip over spring break. Perhaps they weren't back yet. Once all the students were situated in their seats and had spoken the Pledge of Allegiance, the teacher stood up in front of the room. John will not be returning to the class, she sadly announced. Her voice cracked with tears. He and his entire family were in a terrible car accident yesterday and are now all in heaven. After school was over, Ryan got on the bus home. When he arrived home, his mother had already seen the article about John's family's car crash. She was upset and crying because she had been good friends with John's mother. What a tragedy it is, Phyllis sobbed. Shortly after seeing John and his family's spirits, Phyllis could not deny her children's unique abilities. Each one had similar but different gifts. She found it embarrassing. She did not want anyone, especially the neighbors, to find out. Phyllis feared that if word got out in the neighborhood, 
her family would be labeled with, a st with the stigma of having a mental illness. We would be shunned and avoided, she said. Lynn's father mostly stayed quiet on the subject. It would later turn out that he was the reason most of his children had gifts. He handled his ability by drowning it out daily with alcohol. Since Lynn and her siblings were born and raised in the 1960s and 70s, it was not acceptable to talk about being able to see or hear things that others could not. Such a topic could get one a one-way trip straight to the psychiatric ward, escorted by men in white coats and a lobotomy. Therefore, Lynn was told over and over again that what she had heard and seen was not there. Okay. On more than one occasion, while sitting with her mother in the living room, Lynn heard cabinets in the kitchen opening and slamming shut, or the pots and pans rattling, or both at the same time. Lynn knew her mother heard it too. There was no way she could not have, with the commotion being so loud. But when Lynn would bring, up, bring it up to Phyllis, what she had just heard, she would get into trouble for mentioning it. Nothing is there, Phyllis would, would yell at Lynn. Ignore it. But later, Lynn overheard Phyllis telling her brother Ryan about the pots and pans clanging in the cabinet. It was demons, she heard Phyllis say. Several times Lynn was in the house with Phyllis, but in a different room, when she heard a voice that sounded identical to Phyllis's calling her name. Each time, Lynn went to see what her mother wanted. I didn't say anything, Phyllis always said. Until one of those times, Phyllis finally blurted out, it was demons saying your name. Ignore them. The spirit scene in Lynn's home ranged from familiar to unfamiliar to demonic. The demonic ones created chaos in the home often. Recollections of the events fell on deaf ears. Lynn and her siblings were not allowed to mention the paranormal activities. Okay, that took place in their house. However, Lynn would overhear her older siblings speak of them with each other. When Lynn was seven years old, her mother changed religion from Presbyterian to Jehovah's Witness. Lynn's father remained Presbyterian. The change was a breeding ground for demonic activity in their home. It exasperated the negative activity in the house, especially Lynn's parents fighting. There was an increase in physical violence. Thank you, Henry. There was an increase in physical violence and mental abuse from Wayne as well. Wayne's alcoholism got worse. Alcoholism got worse. He was an angry drunk. Lynn's parents were fighting almost every day about her mother's change in religion. On the rare occasion that they were not, one or more of the children were targeted by their father's wrath. Lynn's brother was chosen the most because he was attending the Jehovah Witness Church with Lynn and her mother. Ryan and Lynn did not have much of a choice in the matter, but their father did not see it that way. Sometimes, during his rages, their father's eyes would turn completely black. His voice would change immediately prior to the physical assault. There was rarely any peace. Mostly, a lot of upheaval and chaos. Dark shadows were sometimes visible in the helm. It was usually during these times that someone would get physically assaulted with Wayne, by Wayne. Most of the time, their father would sit outside in his lawn chair in front of the house, watering the grass with a hose in one hand and a beer in the other. The neighbors called him the claw because he seemed to always have a can of beer in his hand. He would do this most nights instead of eating dinner with the family. The family was relieved when he would not eat meals with them. When he did eat dinner with them, he... He, he would target someone at the table and start to chastise them, or he would say something to Phyllis that she took offense at hearing, and they would fight. The kids would sit frozen in their seats, unable to eat. 
One time, their youngest sister, Robin, at age two, apparently had concerns about her father's love for their family. Sitting in her high chair during one of Wayne's rants, she started saying, Daddy love Mommy, Daddy love Linda, Daddy love Ryan, Daddy love Lynn. Robin even included the dog, Daddy love Tuffy. The small Maltese was frequently terrorized by Wayne and eventually killed by him. Yikes. Several times, Wayne got up from his seat at the dinner table and threw the family's entire meal up against the wall. Lynn had a fresh piping hot pizza thrown on the top of her head by her father. The hot cheese clung to her face and chest. Wow. One night, Wayne prepared a spaghetti dinner for the family's spaghetti. For the family. Spaghetti was Lynn's favorite. Lynn sat closest to Wayne on his right, so she was the second person after him to dish up the food. She dished up some spaghetti and took two meatballs that Wayne had made. Wayne had apparently counted out the meatballs as he made them, intending for everyone at the table to have exactly one, but he had not told anyone this. When Lynn took her second meatball, unaware of her father's specific count, Wayne became enraged. He pulled her out of the chair by her hair and put her up against the wall. Lynn started to cry, confused. She had no idea what she had done wrong until Wayne started to yell at her for taking two meatballs. Each of the children is only supposed to have one, he bellowed. Again, if this makes you uncomfortable, move on. Don't, don't turn me into TikTok police or Facebook police or YouTube police or anything like that. Her dinner ended up on the wall and she was told to clean. Lynn was so upset she didn't eat that night. Nobody did except Wayne. The dark presence in the home remained active. The children never knew what was going to happen next. During this time, Lynn continued seeing souls entering and walking through the house. One morning, she went into the bathroom, and there stood a man in a patient gown. He was slender and tall. His features appeared to be African-American. His head appeared to have holes like Swiss cheese. Lynn found out later in life that this was how cancer appeared to her in the, in the dead of who had not crossed over. It was sucking. The man had a somber expression. He looked at her, then turned and walked to the exterior wall. Lynn told her mother what she had seen. It was a demon, Phyllis said. No, Mom, Lynn responded. It was a man from the hospital. Phyllis slapped Lynn's arm for back-talking and insisted it was a demon pretending to be a man. Lynn knew what demons looked like. They looked in the dark shadows in their home, and this certainly did not look like one. As it turned out, Lynn's siblings were experiencing things, too. They had just learned earlier, learned quicker than Lynn, not to mention it to Mom. The violence in Lynn's home increased. Phyllis reached out to the Kingdom Hall as she would show up at church with bruises on as she would show up at church with bruises on her neck and or marks on her face. They told her she would have to stay and could not leave her husband. Divorce was not an option unless she could prove Wayne committed adultery. Anything else didn't matter. Wayne wasn't cheating, he was he was beating. Night after night, Lynn and her siblings would lie in bed listening to their parents arguing in the kitchen. They could not relax or fall asleep and were always on high alert, ready to either run to mom's rescue or run with her out the door, seeking safe shelter. One evening after dinner, Lynn and her mother took their dog for a walk. Lynn, now aged nine, had an ominous feeling. She told her mother about the dark shadows she had seen in the house. She also told her out of the spirit of the spirit of a man in a patient gown that her brother, Ryan, told her that he had seen earlier that day in the hallway by his bedroom. I came out of the bathroom, and the spirit of the man from the hospital was sta standing there in the hallway, Ryan later said. Phyllis remained silent until Lynn said, I feel heavy, like something bad is going to happen tonight. 
I told you not to speak of these shadows and ghosts, Phyllis snapped, chastised. Lynn felt ashamed for giving the warning. Later that evening, Lynn, Phyllis, Linda, and Ryan were sitting together at the dining room table playing a card game called Crazy Eight. Lynn could see the dark shadows lurking in the kitchen, just off the dining room, where they were all seated. She noticed Ryan looking at them, too. Lynn had an ominous feeling and knew something bad was about to happen. Still, she was unprepared for what actually did. Lynn's father, who had been watching television in the family room by herself, came into the dining room. He made a snide remark to Phyllis about her choice of religion. Are you going to the Kingdom Hall to get your crotch tickled with a feather? He sneered. Wayne was drunk. Phyllis ignored him and continued to play cards. There was a grayish misting in the far corner of the kitchen that seemed to be thickening. It grew and became like, and, and became like a wall. Lynn's father staggered in the kitchen, picked up a serrated steak knife out of the sink, and went back to the dining room. No one saw the knife in his hand. Okay, guys, just bear with me, okay? We can't have the holidays anymore because Jehovah's Witnesses don't allow it, Wayne complained in front of the children. Okay, I'm going to skip this part. All right. Phyllis remained silent. Wayne became aggravated by her silence. Liz saw her father's eyes turn totally black and his voice changed. He started making growling and grunting sounds. Then he lunged to attack Phyllis. Wayne threw Phyllis's chair backwards on the floor, leaving Phyllis helpless to get away. She was on her back, unable to move in either direction, and the table leg blocked her on one side, and Wayne blocked her on the other. The wall wasn't just from her head. Wayne made monstrous sounds as he bent over Lynn's mother, choking her with one hand. This is what's red, okay? Don't don't turn me in. And then taking the knife and placing it at her throat with the other. Phyllis was fighting for her life, trying to get him off of her. Just as Lynn's father placed the knife in Phyllis's throat, Ryan stood up and grabbed a heavy glass fruit bowl from the table, hit Wayne over the back with it. This broke not only the bowl, but it also broke Wayne's concentration long enough for him to stand up and stagger after Ryan with the knife still in his hand. Ryan was on the phone dialing the police as Wayne came towards him. Lynn's mother was able to get up from the floor and run out the front door with Lynn and Linda. Ryan, seeing this, that his father's eyes were still black, dropped the phone and ran out the side door into the street in front of the house. That night, they ran to a partially erected house around the block from their home. It was chilly outside, and they were all barefoot and scared. The house where they sought refuge was near a park, with the interstate passing by behind it. That is my dog. The home cement foundation had been poured, and the cinder block's exterior was erected, but no roof or windows had yet been installed. Phyllis's neck was bruised, and she sounded hoarse when she spoke. Lynn and her siblings pleaded with their mother to never return to their father or that house. They were all traumatized. A few hours later, as they huddled together to stay warm, Lynn's older sister, Linda, picked oranges from the people's trees for everyone to eat. They tried to find a comfortable position to sleep in, on the cold concrete slab. They heard their father calling out to them in the dark. Lynn and her siblings pleaded with their mother not to respond, but she did. Back home they went, still afraid. <clears throat> Lynn's mother reasoning for the returning was that their littlest sister, who was barely two years old at the time, was still in the house, sleeping in her room. They pleaded with their mother to leave their father and the haunted home. I do not have grounds to leave, according to the Jehovah's Witness Bible, Philip said and the house is not haunted. A few days later, when Phyllis left the children at home to go to the grocery store, Lynn's father took the opportunity to corner Ryan outside 
His eyes again turned black as he repeatedly kicked Ryan until Ryan fell to the ground in agony. Lynn heard the commotion and watched helplessly from her bedroom window. Wayne assisted for Ryan to get up as he lay in agony, gasping for breath through the intense pain. Once Ryan was standing, Wayne attempted to get him again. If you ever tell your mother about this, I'll get you worse next time. Ryan could hardly stand up. Lynn's father attempted to kick him again, but got his knee instead. Lynn told Phyllis when she came back home about what had happened to Ryan. Please don't tell Dad, Lynn begged. I don't want anything to happen to Ryan. Phyllis was angry to hear about the incident, but agreed not to say anything. Lynn's mother went to the church elders again with the bruises still on her neck, explaining that Wayne had tried to kill them, and her, kill her, and that sometimes, sometimes the children were being beaten too. My stepson, Russell, was visiting, Phyllis went on, and Wayne forced Russell's head into, a hot, into the hot engine that badly blistered the... the, the Hand, that badly blistered the palm of his hand. Then he forced him to lie, lie and claim that he did it by himself in the emergency room. She also told how demented in the same way his behavior got when he was drunk. Our neighbor's child's ball accidentally came into our yard when they, when they were, while they were playing a game next door, Phyllis said. And after a second time, Wayne got up from his chair and went to get the ball as if he was being nice and was going to give it back. He then proceeded to find a fresh pile of dog excrement close by and rubbed the ball into it, then slammed the smeared ball into the face of the child who was waiting for the ball. Wayne would also take his smelly garbage cans, remove the lids, and when the neighbors had their windows open to let a nice breeze while they slept, he put the cans directly under their windows at night. Then he woke up early and retrieved the cans. She wanted to remind them of an incident around uh, another church member had reported. Uh, they had come to see Phyllis, and Wayne chased them out of the yard, swinging the electric hedge trimmers at them, almost like a scene from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Phyllis added these details, hoping to convince the elders it wasn't only her having trouble with Wayne and that she needed help. She could not stay there, and she could end up dead. The elders reminded her of what she already knew. Adultery was the only grounds for divorce. The only support system Lynn's mother had besides Wayne was the church, and they were not supporting her in the time of need. They had no recommendation for her and her children's safety, other than prayer. Although one elder and his wife offered their home as refuge for Phyllis, Lynn, Ryan for a few days. Uh, Linda chose to stay at Wayne's house, so her little sister and dog would not be there alone. Ironically, Lynn's father ended up serving her mother with divorce papers. He made the family leave the home and would not allow Phyllis to take Robin. Linda decided at the time to stay with Robin and Wayne. Guys, uh, we're going to go to 7.30 and stop. I have a, another uh, cl a class I'm teaching at 7.45, so i got to prepare for it. Liz's mother was naive and agreed to share Wayne's attorney. Since she was not working on her own, Wayne took full advantage and got all the marital assets. He gave Phyllis a dilapidated Mustang with holes rusted through the floorboards in the back seat where the children rode and a leaky convertible top. He kept the Cadillac. Nevertheless, it was a relief to Lynn and Ryan to be living with their mother away from the chaos. They had nothing but their clothes, personal items, a blanket, and a pillow each. They shared a one-bedroom apartment. The money Phyllis received from Wayne paid the first and last month's rent, plus a security deposit for the apartment. There was just enough left over to get the lights turned on and buy some food. Phyllis found a job in a store called Grath's. I remember Grath's. Her brother worked there. That was within walking distance of the apartment complex. This was important, as the Mustang broke down frequently, and she did not always have money for the repairs. 
They could not afford a phone and would walk to the payphone over a nearby motel. After a few nights of Phyllis, Phyllis Lynn and Ryan sleeping on the floor, Wayne finally felt a bit guilty and brought over two twin-sized mattresses for them to sleep on. Ryan and Lynn hid in the bathroom when he came. Lynn shared her mattress with Phyllis. Little by little, people gave them things. Sometimes Lynn and her mother and brother would get things out of the trash and fix them up. They frequented a place called Faith Farm, which was similar to Goodwill. Phyllis got a second job and worked at night after her day job. Soon after, she was able to move them into a two-bedroom apartment in the same complex. They still didn't have much, but the trade-off was worth it. No fighting parents and no physical abuse. Shortly after getting settled in the two-bedroom, Linda moved in with Phyllis, too, but their youngest sister had to stay behind. Lynn's father refused to give up custody of the youngest child to Phyllis. She was working two jobs to support her and her other three children and could not afford to care for the littlest one. Her child support did not increase when, Lin when Linda came to live with them. Lynn's mother also became very active in her church. She, served up enough, she saved up enough money to obtain her own attorney and took Lynn's father back to court to pursue custody of Lynn's youngest sister and more child support. Two days before Phyllis could have won her case, and ten months after getting divorced, Phyllis went back and remarried Wayne out of the blue. Lynn and her siblings pleaded with their mother and reminded her of the dark shadows and intermittent ghosts in their old home. I will bring you in front of the elders if you do not stop speaking of such things, Phyllis told Lynn. After moving back to the haunted house with her dad and sister, Robin Phyllis took Lynn to church on Sunday. Guys, we're going to have to stop. I have to teach a class at 7.45, so we're going to have to continue with this next week. I thought for sure we'd get close to the end. This was really close. So uh, page 217 is where we're going to continue next week. I want to thank everybody for coming. Let me do this here. I want to thank everyone that came to listen today. I, I appreciate it. It went longer than I thought it would. But, uh, again, tomorrow, join me at 6.30 p.m. Pacific at YouTube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio for Sandra Champlain, and we're going to be talking about views of the afterlife. So thanks, thanks everybody, for coming, and I'll see you tomorrow, and have a great evening. Okay, guys, um, I'm done for the evening, and I will see you guys tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I hope you have a great evening. We will continue with this next week. Have a good one.